This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from Lawrence Lessig. Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. He serves as director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Together with political strategist Joe Trippi, Lessig founded Root Strikers, a grassroots activist organization focused on taking a stand against the corrupting influence of money in politics. In this Aspen lecture entitled, How Democracy Gets Restored, Lessig asserts that there has been a profound loss of confidence by Americans in their government and a growing sense that this representative democracy doesn't work for them. Lessig goes on to show exactly why he thinks Americans are right, and just how we could once again have a government that represents everyone. Here's Lawrence Lessig. It was almost 100 years after the Constitution explicitly granted African Americans the right to vote that they actually achieved the right to vote. I'm sure you remember the history, at least the outline. There was this war, remember? It was the Civil War. And in the middle of that war, in a classic bait and switch, Lincoln redefined the war. Until that point, all had believed this was a war for the Union. Lincoln had said it was a war for the Union. Indeed, so clearly was it a war for the Union that Lincoln had actually toyed with the idea of a 13th Amendment that would explicitly secure the right of slavery forever as a way to secure the peace. But at Gettysburg, all this changes. At Gettysburg, Lincoln declares this war to be a war about a nation dedicated to a proposition, a proposition that all men are created equal. Now, that phrase doesn't exist in the Constitution, didn't exist in that Constitution. It was Jefferson who had declared that phrase in the Declaration. And now 286,000 casualties into the war, the war was redefined to be about equality too, about the equal dignity of citizenship. And seven years after that war, America did what no sane American in 1863 would have believed they were going to do. They passed an amendment that explicitly secured to African Americans the right to vote. Now, when they did this, people had in their head this image of the future, at least those who pushed the amendment, this image of a happy future of African Americans participating equally in the right to vote. That wasn't the picture of the 1870s, or 80s, or 90s, or 1900s, or 10s, or 20s, or 30s, or 40s, or 50s, or 60s. Instead, the picture of those periods was more like this. It was a picture for 100 years. OK, I exaggerate. For 95 years, a concerted effort to exclude through a whole range of techniques. Techniques, the most ambitious being Texas's, of course, the all-white primary, which explicitly by law said African Americans were not permitted to vote in the Democratic primary. All of these techniques designed to keep blacks out. So if you have a picture of the democracy 
This was that democracy in the Old South. There were two elections. A general election where all citizens were entitled to vote, regardless of race. And then there was a white primary where only whites got to vote. And in that democracy, you had to win in that white primary to be able to run effectively in the general election. Not logically, but practically. That's the way the world worked. So it's true to say blacks were not totally excluded. We could remix a bit the Supreme Court's opinion in Citizens United and say, hey, you know, the people, including African Americans, had the ultimate influence over elected officials because, after all, there was this general election. But they had that influence only after whites had their way with the candidates who wished to run in that general election. So they were excluded, African Americans, where it mattered most in the Democratic primary because the South, of course, was a bastion of the Democratic Party. As Boss Tweed used to say, I don't care who does the electin as long as I get to do the nominating. <laughs> this was their plan. They were going to control the nominating and thereby control the democracy. Now, as we look back on that, the thing that always struggles, I struggle with as I think about this is, how is it for 100 years this is what we did? I don't mean, how did the racists do this? And in some sense, we all were racists for those 100 years. But I mean the relatively decent sorts. The relatively decent sorts. How did they defend this? And the answer is, they defended it in light of the First Amendment. The part of the First Amendment that secures to the people the right of the people to assemble, the right of association, which comes out of that amendment. A right to gather with whomever you wish. And that's, of course, what the white Democrats said they were doing. They were just associating with themselves to decide who the candidates for the general election should be. It was an expression of a fundamental right to permit them to associate, to exclude in their associations. But of course, what we recognize and what the courts and the Congress eventually recognized was that to fix this problem of exclusion, we didn't have to reject a right of association. We fixed it instead by, by embracing a concept of equal citizenship first. That in a democracy, there had to be an equal right to participate at every important stage, an equal right. Which doesn't mean that everybody will participate equally. Some will, some won't. But an equal right, which means that the government can't directly or indirectly exclude people on the basis of what is an irrelevant reason, and race finally had become an irrelevant reason. It took our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents too long to come to this view. But now, of course, the view is taken for granted. Now, of course, it's easy to pick on our parents, our grandparents, people we don't know, easy to pick on their blindness. But what I like to think about is, what is our blindness? What is the same for us? If we look back at the older generation and say, really, you thought that? What will our kids look back at us and say, seriously? <laughs> you think that? Is there something that we believe, that we take for granted, that is at the center 
of how we run our nation that our kids will say to us, you are crazy, just crazy. And the answer, of course, is yes. Every generation has that thing. And I think that thing is going to be elections again. The way we run campaigns. Because in America, of course, campaigns are privately funded. Members of Congress spend anywhere between 30 to 70% of their time raising money privately to fund their campaigns or to get their party back into power. They dial for dollars. This is their life. Over and over, calling people they don't know, asking them for money. I'm sure some of the people in this audience have received those telephone calls. <laughs> and of course, they don't dial anymore. They peck. They peck on these keypads to get the people on the other end of the line. As, as they peck, I begin to think this, be, this should be our model for what they're doing, the Skinner box. Because, of course, even stupid animals can learn how to pack to get the sustenance they need. This is the modern American congressperson. As he or she learns through this osmosis exactly which buttons they must push to get the money they need to sustain their campaigns or get their party back into power. As any of us would, as they do this, they develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do will affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shapeshifters. As they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money, not in issues 1 to 10, but in issues 11 to 1,000. Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. And to clarify, she went on, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> As they do this, they bend, they shift. They shift in the direction of the funders. They become dependent on these funders for their job, for their party's success, these funders. So who are they, these funders? Now, before I answer that question, I want to convince you of something which you might not recognize you believe, but you really believe. It matters who those funders are. If I told you that the Chinese government offered to fund the campaigns of candidates in the United States. You know, not equally, but they say, you know, come make a pitch to us, and we'll give you a million dollars or two million dollars. You would believe that matters. Or the UAW, or ExxonMobil, or just whites. You would believe it matters who is funding the campaigns. It obviously matters. Because as people bend to get the funding they need, they adjust their view of what they need to do. It matters, obviously. So in our current democracy, who are they? Who are these relevant funders? People who fund at a level that makes it important enough for candidates to worry about what they think as they decide what they're going to do. And the answer is, the relevant funders of campaigns in America are no more than 0.05% of the American public. At most, 0.05%. 0.05% are the members, who are the people, who the members think about as they are engaging in this process of funding their campaigns. That's about 150,000 Americans, which the internet tells me is about the same number of people as are named Lester, which is why in my TED talk I called the United States Lesterland. That's where we live, Lesterland, where these people constantly focus on what the Lesters want 
in order to fund their campaigns to get back into Congress. And after the decision by the Supreme Court in McCutcheon versus the FEC, that number is going to fall. I think it's going to be no more than about 35,000, which turns out to be the same number of people as are named Sheldon. <laughs> so whether it's Lester Land or Sheldon City, what this system of funding has done is create a dependence on the few and not a dependence on the many. Now, is that the way it was supposed to be? Framers of our Constitution didn't give us a democracy. They gave us what they called a republic. But by a republic, they explained they meant a representative democracy. And by a representative democracy, they meant a government that would have a branch that would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. So here's their model of government. They have the people and they have the government. Exclusive dependency. It's kind of cool the way that bounces like that, right? The people and the government. And by the people, Madison was very clear at least in Federalist 57, he said, not the rich more than the poor. The people. This was their model. But the problem is we've evolved a different model of government. A model where they're not dependent on the people alone. Increasingly, they're dependent on the funders, this tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% who are in no way representative of the people. No way representative of the people. This picture has been corrupted and corrupted in a way that ought to be familiar to you because the corruption is the pattern we saw in the Old South. Because again, there are two elections in the United States. There is a voting election where all citizens get to vote. And there is what we could call a green primary, where the relevant funders of campaigns get to vote. And to be allowed to run in the voting election, you must do extremely well in the Green primary. You don't necessarily have to win. There's Jerry Brown. There are these exceptions. There's Bratz who beat cancer. I get it. There are exceptions. But in the main, you must win the Green primary to have a chance in the voting election. Exactly the pattern that defined the Old South. There is an exclusion. But the exclusion is much more extreme in the democracy of today, because the thing the Old South could at least say is that the majority got to participate in the white primary. But in the new America, it's the tiniest fraction of the 1% who participate in the green primary. Now, of course, you could say the people are not totally excluded from this democracy. And that's right. The Supreme Court was absolutely right. The people have the ultimate influence over the elected officials because there is a general election. But only after the candidates need to meet and understand what the funders of campaigns want do the people have a chance to have their effect in that general election. So the people are excluded, once again, where it matters in the nominating, the effective nominating, the effective petition to get people in a place where they can be competitive in a general or even a primary election. And the consequence of this system is a democracy that is responsive to the funders. And we now have the evidence to say only, only. 
Now, I'm going to get in some trouble for my dean for this, but I'm going to cite a Princeton study here for a second. <laughs> Maybe the largest empirical analysis of policy decisions by our government in the history of political science tried to tease out the relationship between the views of different sectors of our society and what our government actually did. And as Guylands and Page conclude, quote, when the preferences of economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. The average voter's view does not matter to what our government actually does when that view is inconsistent with the view of the economic elite. Now, if you call yourself a representative democracy and this is what the numbers say, you ought to recognize we've got a problem here. We've got a problem because we are in no sense a representative democracy if these numbers are right. And of course, these numbers just confirm what most Americans already believe, that there's no reason to participate in this democracy if you're not that tiny fraction of the 1% who funds these elections. Now, my belief is, my hope is, my dream is, my kids will look back at us and say, how is it you guys thought this? Not the plutocrats. There are, of course, plutocrats who love this. They think this is great. Not those people, but the relatively decent sorts. <laughs> the relatively decent sorts. How did you guys believe this? My kids, I hope, will say this to me. And my answer, law professor that I am as well, you know, it's the First Amendment. It's the First Amendment. Again, it's the First Amendment. It's not the Association Clause. Now it's the Freedom of Speech Clause, which has been interpreted to grant an absolute right of people to, quote, speak, which means an absolute right, it turns out, to fund campaigns to the exclusion of the democracy. But here's the thing I believe my kids will get. This issue is not about speech. It's about voice. It's about voice in our government. And the solution to this problem is not about silencing speech. The solution is a solution that gives people more voice. The solution. Systems like small dollar public funding, which a Republican version of which is something like the Americans Anti-Corruption Act, which would give every voter a voucher, which they can use to fund campaigns, or a democratic version of this, something like the Government by the People Act by John Sarbanes, which matches small dollar contributions up to nine to one, to make it so that people can run winning campaigns, never taking contributions from the tiniest fraction exclusively, but instead taking money from all of us. Either way, these statutes would radically change the business model of fundraising. The business model of fundraising would change as candidates and campaigns would be focusing on raising their money from the many and not from the few. And if the numbers are right, if they're big enough, if the multipliers are big enough, the obvious incentive would be to shift to funding with the many rather than the few. Connecticut, when it adopted a system like this, found in the first year 87% of the elected representatives opted into the small dollar funded system as opposed to the system where they're raising money from the tiniest fraction of the 1%. Now, this is not a right to create equal speech. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a right 
not to be excluded from the democracy, not to be excluded for irrelevant reasons. If we were an aristocracy, if we were a plutocracy, if we were a kleptocracy, then of course money would be a relevant reason. But in a democracy, in a representative democracy, in a republic as our framers conceived of it, money is not a relevant reason. Okay, now I've just committed a major faux pas according to the organizers of the movement that is trying to bring about reform here. I've broken their new first rule. Because what they want us to talk about when we talk about this corruption is what does this corruption cost you? What are you not getting because of this corruption? They want us to say, look, stand back and connect all the issues you care about, whether it's healthcare reform on the left or government bailouts on the right, global warming on the left, complex tax system on the right, financial reform on the left, financial reform on the right. Step back and recognize that there will be no sensible change in any of those issues until we change this corruption. So this movement for reform says we need to start saying to people, imagine what you could get if we actually reform this system. You could get what you want. Now, I think it's important and necessary, maybe even right, to talk about what people can get. But the more I think about this, the more I think about a different question. Not what we can get, but how much have we lost? We come from Lesterland today, a world that has disenfranchised the many to enfranchise the few. That's bad, certainly bad. It's bad because that dynamic, creating what Fukuyama calls a vitocracy, vetoocracy, a system that will facilitate the vetoing of any change or any reform, climate change, healthcare reform, tax reform, you name it, it's bad because this system will block change. But it's not just bad, it's also wrong. It's not as violently wrong as the wrongs which African Americans suffered as we struggled for a hundred years to come true to the promise that the Civil War announced. But it's as morally wrong. Because what it does is deny equal citizenship to us, to the vast majority of us. Lesterland is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is not who we were promised to be. So why is it we don't escape Lesterland? The standard answer to that question, why don't we escape it, is the people don't care. If you ask the pundits about this issue, money and politics, pundits say, people don't care about this issue. They don't vote on this issue. They'll never vote on this issue. There's no reason to ever talk about this issue because the people will never do anything about it. But as I've studied this, I've discovered here the pundits are wrong. It turns out this is also the first time they've ever been wrong about anything. <laughs> because they're confusing two different issues. We did a poll at the end of last year, and we found, um, first question we asked was, um, how important you, is it to you that the influence of money in politics be reduced? We found 96% of Americans said it was important to reduce the influence of money in politics. 96%. And when you recognize 5% of America are lobbyists and lawyers, that's a pretty high number. 
96%. But then the next question we asked was, how likely do you think it will be that the influence of money in politics will be reduced? And the answer was 91% thought it was not likely. So when you take 96% and you add it to 91%, what that produces is the politics of resignation. We are adults. We learn to live with what we can get. So, you know, just like at least 96% of us wish we could fly like Superman, but because we don't, 91% of us at least don't leap off of tall buildings regularly trying to fly like Superman, so too with this issue. Americans sit quietly, they go on with their life, because what the hell could we ever do about it? But what that means is if, and this is a big if, I get it, but if we could thaw that resignation, if we could embrace Harvey Milk's strategy, if we could give them hope, a way to believe that equal citizenship is actually possible, if we could give them a reason to hope and to believe, my belief is they would act. Just as African Americans rallied and rose up after decades of passive acceptance of a system which was deeply unjust because they knew there was nothing they could do about it, once the Supreme Court articulated the equality which was their entitlement and leaders began to organize, they rallied to force with many whites as well the change that brought about the promise that Lincoln had announced. To give them hope. Okay, so it's a very strange weekend for me to come here to talk about this. For reasons that when I agreed to come, I couldn't have predicted, come together to make this a difficult, really difficult moment to talk about this hope. First, tonight there's going to be a showing at the festival of this film, The Internet's Own Boy, about my friends, Aaron Swartz. Aaron Swartz was a genius, incredible activist, incredible computer innovator, somebody who I knew for a long time and had worked with, conspired with for a long time. <clears throat> and Aaron, in 2007, had come to me with a question. I was in Berlin for the year working on uh, a TED talk about the problems of copyright and the internet. And I was writing a book, my last book about copyright and the internet, a book called Remix. I was so proud of the work I was doing about copyright and the internet. And Aaron said to me, you know, how do you think you are ever going to make progress on those issues? So long as there is this fundamental corruption in the way our government works. It was a little miffed. You know, I wanted him to share with, my, with me the excitement of what I was doing. And I pushed back. I said, you know, Aaron, it's not my field. My field is copyright, internet policy. He says, I get it. As an academic, it's not your field. Is that what you mean? He said, yeah, that's what I mean. It's not my field. He said, OK, but as a citizen, as a citizen, is it your field as a citizen? And this is the way Aaron was. He didn't tell you, he asked. 
but his question spoke as clearly as a child's hug. And that question changed me, changed my work radically. In came the new, out went the old. I took on this project of trying to figure out how we could build the understanding and then movement to end this system of corruption in Washington. It was a hopeless task, <laughs> hopeless but true. But I loved hopeless because my brand was pessimism. That was everything I had done before. My agent was excited, another pessimistic, hopeless task. This is perfect for you. So I took it on. I said, what the hell is tenure for? If you can't throw away everything you've done and embrace something new. And so that's what I did. In 2007, I began this work. And for six years, puttered along, writing and speaking 500 times around the world trying to build the understanding and recognition necessary to feed the movement that would bring about the reform. And then on January 11th, I forgot 9-11, 2013, Aaron Swartz committed suicide. He had been in the center of a two-year struggle Prosecution by the federal government that accused him of downloading too many academic articles which he intended to share freely on the internet. That was their charge. They threatened him initially with 35 years in jail for that. After two years, he had spent all of his resources trying to defend, and they hadn't even gotten to trial. And at the end, a certain hopelessness overcame him. Hopelessness. Now, Aaron was not my son. But he might as well have been my son. Because everything I had been doing had been to try to give him hope that there was a way to fight this. There was a way to win. And I'd failed. I had failed, his friends had failed, his family had failed. And the hopelessness overcame him, and he went away. And that changed me again. It changed me again, because after he died, I began leaping from tall buildings. I began taking on what felt like challenges were much less academic, much less sterile, much more urgent. They tried to, they tried to make sense of what he had started me on. So on the anniversary of his death, we'd been working in New Hampshire to try to figure out how we get the presidential candidates in New Hampshire to think about this issue of the system of corruption in Washington. There's a group called the New Hampshire Rebellion. We're trying to get them to focus on this. And I'd been inspired in New Hampshire by another person, this incredible woman, Doris Haddock, AKA Granny D, who on January 1st, 1999, at the age of 88, started a walk from Los Angeles 
to Washington, D.C. with a sign on her chest that said, Campaign Finance Reform. 13 months later, 3,200 miles later, at the age of 90, she walked into Washington, D.C. There were a whole bunch of congressmen walking with her the last couple miles. They had driven out to meet her and <laughs> follow her in. And I'd been inspired by what Granny D had done. But I didn't have 13 months. I had three kids who hated to walk, so I wasn't going to do that. But my thought was, was there a way to remix what Granny D was about and Aaron's inspiration? Granny D came from New Hampshire. Maybe we'd bring her back to New Hampshire. So on the anniversary of Aaron's death, we began a 185-mile walk across New Hampshire. Did I tell you in January? <laughs> we began in Dixville Notch, which is the place the presidential primary will happen. We walked all the way down to Nashua. We left on the day Aaron died. We arrived on the day Granny D was born. And this was, for me, a religious experience. Because what we discovered as we took this walk was the incredible passion and frustration that people have about this issue. People would scream from their house. They would honk their horn. They would run out in their pajamas. They put signs in the front of their road. Welcome, Granny D. Walkers. They were desperate for someone to talk about what could happen to fix what they all perceived was their democracy stolen. Conservatives and liberals alike. It's the great thing about New Hampshire. It is a radically divided state. What this walk did, in a certain sense, was to give them hope. And for me, the most proud moment was something I just recently was sent. This picture of our sign on this farm. This farm is the farm of a leading Republican in New Hampshire, the farm where Romney announced his candidacy for the presidency, a farm which has embraced the idea of the New Hampshire rebellion, which announces the core value here, that this is a cross-partisan movement for reform. So I leapt from that building announcing this walk, expecting five people would be with us, and 200 people by the end were participating with us. So that led me to leap from another tall building. The TED Talk that I gave earlier this year, I announced we we're going to start something called Mayday Pack. Mayday as in, you know, Mayday the distress signal. Mayday for this democracy. We were calling a Mayday on this democracy, and we were going to launch what we called a super PAC to end all super PACs. Now, for the last couple of years, we've been calculating, you know, how much would it cost to actually run a campaign that would win enough seats in Congress for fundamental reform? How much would it cost? There's a number there. And then the idea was we could kickstart, well, sort of, because you can't really kickstart political events, but we'd kickstart a certain percentage of that from the bottom up, and then we'd match that with large contributions from the top, with the objective of winning a Congress committed to fundamental reform in the way that campaigns are funded. By Election Day 2016, which as I was preparing for that talk, I discovered would have been the day that Aaron Swartz turned 30. Now, when we announced this, people said, what, you're going to use big money to end big money? And I said, yeah, it's ironic. I get it. <laughs> it's ironic. 
But we have to follow Lincoln, who said, embrace the irony. OK, Lincoln didn't really say that. But <laughs> the irony in the nation of Colbert is the thing that gives us hope. It's the thing that gives us hope. So we announced a plan, four steps. Number one, in 2014, we were going to pilot this idea in a small number of districts to prove to the pundits that, in fact, people cared enough about this issue to vote on it. Then in 2016, we were going to run a really hugely large campaign to win the Congress necessary to pass this fundamental reform. And then in the first 100 days of 2017, we would create the pressure to pass this fundamental reform. And after a reform Congress was elected, we would then begin to pass or consider any constitutional changes that were necessary to secure the reform that we had just passed. In 2014, this pilot was to run in five races, think Eric Cantor, five times over, to prove the pundits are filled with piffle. That's a word my mother used. I never knew what it meant. OK, but piffle. <laughs> to prove that indeed we could rally people to this, that the hope that was just under resignation could be pierced if they saw it and they could do something about it. And we estimated the cost of that campaign would be about $12 million for those five races, the first stage, not the second stage in 2016. And my idea was, OK, let's try to raise that, at least half of it, in a Kickstarter-like way. So we announced two stages. One, we'd raise a $1 million in 30 days. We'd get that matched. And then we'd announce a $5 million in 30 days project and then get that matched as well. So that would be $12 million. So we launched the first one on May 1st. Mayday. And the 30 days quickly turned to 13 days. We crossed the million dollar mark in 13 days. And then we got it matched, and we launched the second project, $5 million by July 4th. And now there were all sorts of people excited about this. We had an incredible range of people who wanted to put out video ads supporting us, including Jason Alexander, Steve Wozniak, and for the people under 30, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the coolest possible of all. Um, so we had this incredible passion and activity out there pushing people to support this project. But here's the truth as we look to six days before our deadline. The truth is I made a really big mistake. Because the number, $5 million, is too big. And a plan that was premised on hope quickly translated into hopeless. And what we know from the data and the study that we've been doing about how people are joining and why they're not is that that hopelessness resigns them. And we have not been able to raise the money as quickly as we need. And because it's a Kickstarter campaign, if we don't raise it, it all disappears on July 4th. It all gets refunded back. And the data people say to me, so if you can't find a way to get another million dollars in this by tomorrow, it's going to disappear. So here's what I mean about coming to speak to you today. <laughs> because tonight, I have to go and watch and then talk about this film about my friend Aaron. But what I'm really thinking about is not January 11th is January 12th, the day after Aaron died. Because the hardest reality to accept in life 
is when you recognize maybe love is not enough. You know, I loved that boy. Did everything I could. It wasn't enough. And I love this country. Amazing, I know, a liberal. But it's true. We liberals, we can love our country too, right? I love our country. But what if it's not enough? And how do you go on when you fear that maybe you don't have enough, that this love alone is not enough? And how do you, in the face of that recognition, embrace the hope that's necessary to make this possible? When so much has been lost, when so much is going to be lost. Here's what I know about that. What I know is this democracy is dying. Our kids think it's a waste of time, and the numbers prove it. It is for them a waste of time. It makes no sense. But we, especially us, we have to find a way to find the strength to push, to fix it, to push on in the face of this because we inherited, we were given an incredible tradition, not of perfect justice, but of a proud struggle for, as the Constitution declares, a more perfect union. And we inherited a democracy that the world envied. But that democracy is now a joke to the rest of the world because it doesn't articulate the ideals of our tradition. So here's what I know. This we can't let die. This we can't let die. This idea of a government dependent on the people, the people, not the rich more than the poor. This we must find a way, us especially. This, this we must find a way to save. Thank you very much. So, okay. I'm happy to take some questions. You mentioned how the uh, Supreme Court uh, helped ultimately establish the right for blacks to vote. Could you talk a little bit about the Supreme Court's role today and the more recent rulings? Yeah, so um, I think the parallel about the relative um, importance of the court versus the democracy is perfect between the civil rights movement and this movement. So you're right, the Supreme Court has made, in my view, a lot of mistakes. They've made the problem much worse. But even if the Supreme Court had gotten everything right, it still would be the case that we have a democracy funded by the tiny fraction of the 1%. The 0.05% that I'm talking about is not corporate money. It's not money coming from PACs or it's contributions um, to campaigns directly. So you know, the Supreme Court articulated the principle of Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. It wasn't until 1964 that we had a Civil Rights Act that really changed 
the inequality in our system in 1965 before we had a Voting Rights Act. It took 10 years of real democratic movement before we could get to the place that we achieve the promise of equality. I think the same is true here. There are many people out there who would tell you, we will solve this if we declare corporations are not persons, or if we declare money is not speech, if we just fix the Supreme Court. And my view is, you know, happy to get the Supreme Court to get it right. I'm kind of convinced that Elena Kagan will wrestle them to the ground, so I'm not really worried too much about them <laughs> getting it right. Um, but even if they get it right, the hard work is this work. The hard work is building the democratic movement to bring about the legislation we need to change the way elections are funded. That's not something the court can do. It's only something Congress will do, and it requires getting a Congress that stands up and says, yes, the obvious is true. The obvious is true. What everybody in 30 years will say is obvious is true today, and we ought to finally stand up and do something about it. Ah, I have a question about here. Like people are jogging, they're getting their exercise. The question is, um, is there a model out there that we can use that works? Why Another redesign countries. it? Another country. Yeah. So, the re so, so there's not a direct analogy for two reasons. Number one, the United States is not a parliamentary democracy, which means we don't have, we have regular elections which means that there's a permanent campaign around those regular elections. In parliamentary democracies, the parliament calls an election, and then six weeks later, they have a new parliament. So that's one big difference. And the second big difference, related to the first question, is the Supreme Court's interpretation of the First Amendment. So in other countries, they regulate where you can have political ads. They require people to have free television time. They restrict the length of a campaign. Um, all of those things we couldn't do in the United States. Uh, and members of parliament are not in the business of raising money. I once spoke at the Swedish parliament about this afterwards and sat with a parliamentarian for dinner. He said, you know, literally in eight years of my time in parliament, I have never once asked anybody for money for anything. I thought, oh my God, imagine what it would be like to be a member of Congress and never once have to ask people for money. You're like, go out there and say what you believe and let that be the thing that's um, attracting or not attracting. So, so we don't have a perfect analog. But I also think that we should not adopt the kind of solutions that other countries have adopted. So they have public funding, but it's kind of top-down public funding. The government decides, this is how much your party gets, this is how much your party gets. And I would much rather have a kind of bottom-up public funding. You know, I, I like vouchers. So imagine giving everybody a voucher. If it's $50, that's just, that's, you know, imagine a rebate of $50. And because everybody pays at least $50 to the federal government, that's a rebate of money you actually have paid to the federal government. So you're getting your money back. And people say, it's just taxes you're getting back. Now you have to embrace your inner tea party. It's not taxes, it's my money. I'm getting my money back from the federal government. And I use that money to fund campaigns. I choose who gets the money for my campaign. So there's no government picking how much, there's no government picking who. It's me picking, exercising, and if we did it broadly and had the right numbers, then that would just change how they fund elections. So that's a bottom-up way of funding elections. I think it would be better than anything that's happening anywhere else because it would bring people into the political process more effectively as candidates thought, not how do I get their vote alone, it's also how do I convince them to give me their vouchers or how do I convince them to give me small-dollar contributions. So it would be an ongoing process of trying to bring people in as opposed to once every two years trying to figure out how to trick them. Okay, other question. Uh, so you estimated step one of your plan was $12 million. How about step two? 
it's scary, this number. Um, you know, it wasn't scary for me because I originally estimated the number was like $2 billion. Um, but the firm we hired went through district by district and calculated. And the problem with the calculation is that uh, it's static in the sense that if we're successful in stage one, that will shrink the number of districts we have to worry about in stage two. Not because of the five, but because if we create enough of a buzz around stage one, then by stage two, a whole bunch of people will get themselves on the right side of this issue because they don't want to be a potential target. And it's kind of a political terrorism is what this is, right? Um, peaceful, but it's uh, terrifying people because they don't want to be the target of this attack. So if it didn't shrink the size, if we just took the static number, the estimate was between five and 700 million. Okay, that's a lot of money. But when I originally thought about this idea, I thought, well, what if we just got a list of, we went around to 50 people and said, do you want to be on the list of the 50 people who saved America? And at 700 million, that's $14 million. That's not a lot of money, right? So, I mean, for, you know, a certain class. So the point is, it's not a huge amount of money compared to other months spent, and if you just add up the amount of money that will be spent in super PACs in this election cycle, it's probably about a third of the total amount that will be spent by super PACs in this election cycle. So I think the second stage is, is, is completely possible. And here's the other point, necessary. In the reform community, there's, there's two views. One is that we can kind of like win five more seats every couple of elections, and eventually we'll be in a place where we have enough to get a bill passed. I don't believe in that view. I believe there has to be a moonshot. I, I believe you have to do it immediately. Because if you do it five more every time, like those members of Congress becomes members of Congress. They become acculturated to the ways of the system. And there are lots of ways for the other side to work out how to resist their influence. So the point is, if you do it slowly, you can't win. The only way to do it is to do it immediately. And, you know, peak it in one cycle and crush it in the second. And, you know, it's not inconsistent with the objectives of presidential candidates on either side. Because if you think you know, you're Hillary Clinton or you're Rand Paul, wouldn't you love to have a Congress that was not thinking about what this, you know, what this tiny fraction wanted when it listened to you tell it how it should legislate? Wouldn't you want a Congress free to lead? So the point is, let's create the environment, so the next president, whether Democrat or Republican, can be successful, rather than the environments, which Fukuyama says we have right now, of vitocracy, where we have no democracy, we just have the ability to stop everybody at every stage. Hi, could you, <clears throat> thank you for your presentation. Could you talk about the role of the two-party system, generally, uh, which I think is a bigger impediment to reform than the money in politics, and the entrenched interests of the two parties in keeping their parties uh, structured as they are, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that as, uh, as a, a feature of uh, your reform program. Yeah, so, um, so I believe the American democracy has a whole bunch of things it needs to fix. Um, part of the two-party system is high on the list, gerrymandering is high on the list. Um, uh, so there are a whole bunch of things we've got to reform. Um, and, I, and the bipartisan, um, the bipartisan reform commission that just released the study that has a whole list of the things that need to happen that I think is exactly right. But what I'm trying to think of is the sequence of reform. What reform is generative? What reform makes other reform more possible? Um, so you know, we saw a big experiment in the last cycle to try to take on the two-party uh, system 
about the presidential election, the Americans Elect Project. Um, and they spent a huge amount of money and found the incredible power of the two-party system made it almost impossible for them to even field a candidate who was not tied to either of these two parties. Um, I think that's tied up with the way money has an influence here. So I want to deal with money first, and then I'm happy to think about the other changes that have to happen down the way. But I want to stay lightning focused on the one thing that's got to be fixed first. Um, there's a woman right over here. Thank you very much. Um, for those people in the room, I'm sure they're here, that are participating in funding um, the current, as, as is politics, is there any advice you could give to folks with it that, you, you know, is there a way that they can influence this? Or is there, or is there only, you know, what can people do yeah, great on question. all spectrums? Yeah. So I'm not a believer in unilateral disarmament. So I don't, you know, a lot of people say, shouldn't we just give money or should we stop giving money, or should we just give money to people who say they're only going to take $100 and something like that? My answer is no. Like, there are real fights that are happening right now. They're very important. You know, climate change is the issue that's top on my list, but whatever your issue is, there are real fights that are important. We've got to win enough seats to win on those issues. But I do think it's appropriate to say, before you write a check to anybody, where are you on fundamental reform? I'm not going to give you a dime unless you have committed to co-sponsoring fundamental reform. So I want you to be elected, yeah. And if you go to a site, I'll put it up on the web, I'll put it up, up here, you go to a site called um, reform.to, you can see exactly where all the candidates are um, on fundamental reform, whether they've signed, co-sponsored, promised to co-sponsor. Um, and you can say, you've got to be on that list if I'm going to be sending you any money. So that's a way to continue the struggles we need right now, but be able to create the movement we actually need. Um, let me just take one more. Can I take one more? One more. One last. One really good one. Is that the best question right here? It's the best question. We've got it. Thank you very much. Do you think we'll, we could ever get to the point where there's no representatives? We, we on taxpayers take our entire tax bill and allocate our taxes to the programs that we support. Um, do you think that's possible or, or practical? Um, I'm pretty old-fashioned. I believe in a representative democracy. I think a direct democracy with a bunch of people who are busy and have a million things to do is a recipe for disaster because you know, there would be things that people care about they get really rallied around, but who has time really to figure it out? You know, so that, I think, kind of think that's what we hired them for. Like, they come every two years to get our reaffirmation, re-sign the contract, but we want the people who are going to be able to exercise the judgment that's really hard to do well. I think it's a full-time job to do it well. And I don't have time for a full-time job like that, in addition to the three other jobs I've got. So, um, so no, I don't support direct democracy. Now, some things I think people are pretty good at. I think people are pretty good at, you know, deliberating about how to change the Constitution. I think they're really good at that. Um, but the ongoing business of government, ordinary government, we need a government to do. And we need a government that can do it in the right way, worried about the right issues. And that's what we don't have right now. 
So I'm grateful for your attention and time, and um, thank you very much. That was Lawrence Lessig recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 29, 2014. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that both shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and at Facebook slash Aspen Ideas. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.